Hello and welcome back to Everyday Oral Surgery. This is your host, Dr. Grant Stuckey. I'm an oral maxillofacial surgeon practicing in Denver, Colorado, and I really appreciate you tuning into the episode today. Thanks to all those who have emailed and texted me ideas about topics for the podcast or guests they want to hear from. If you would like to be a guest on the show or know someone you'd like to hear from, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com. Also, please visit our website, everydayoralsurgery.com, if you'd like to search the podcast in an easier way by topic. We'd like to hear from everyone and really appreciate you guys listening. Keep in mind that everything we're discussing here is based on personal experience and opinions, so please supplement everything you're learning here with approved research studies. Without further ado, please enjoy today's episode. Hey guys, before we start the episode, I want to give you a heads up on something super cool going on. As many of you know, I talk a lot about the instruments I use on the podcast, and I've tried instruments from many different suppliers, and by far, I've found that KLS Martin provides the best oral surgery extraction instruments. So, I recently spoke with KLS Martin about the podcast, and they agreed to offer a real amazing promotional code to our listeners. So, if you guys use the code capital E-O-S-E, lowercase X-O, 22, between now and the end of the year of 2022... You'll receive 40% off any instruments that are part of the basic extraction tray that KLS provides. This includes almost any instrument you'd kind of want in your routine extraction tray, including elevators, mouth props, and the main extraction forceps like the upper and lower universal. So I will post a list of the instruments that this code will cover on our website. You can also email me at grantstukey at gmail.com if you want that list emailed to you. This is a super legit deal. I love these instruments. Can't tell you how excited I am about using this myself. I'm constantly, you know, needing more instruments and using KLS to provide more stuff for me. So super cool. Appreciate those guys for doing this for our listeners and uh, feel free to enjoy. Thank you. All right. Welcome back to another episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Today, I'm with Dr. Michael Markowitz. He is an oral max facial surgeon practicing in Buffalo, New York. Mike, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast again. Great to be back, Grant. Thanks for having me. Yes, we have a good topic that I'm excited to discuss with you. But before we do that, can you just briefly give us an update on kind of your program and stuff going on there? Yeah, sure. So we're still humming along, doing all of the things we do and trying to build the department and build the residency. We are currently searching for two faculty members, actually three. We're looking to add very soon another head and neck trained surgeon to collaborate at the cancer center that we work at here in Buffalo. So that's Roswell Park Cancer Center. And we kind of collaborate with them to multidisciplinary department with plastics and ENT and oral maxillofacial surgery. And we all, we all do the same things. So for tomorrow, for example, we have John and a free flap that my ENT colleagues doing the resection and we're doing the reconstruction and dental implants and then prosthesis with our max maxillofacial prosthodontist. And then we're trying to add faculty to fill that spot, but also general oral maxillofacial surgery and perhaps another pediatric surgeon as well. Any given day, you know, in the week for this week, for example, we're doing a flap tomorrow. We have other cases going on in clinic. Wednesdays at Children's, I think it's craniofacial. We have two distractor cases, and I think an orthognathic case and a cleft case. Thursday, we have back to the cancer center. We have a couple smaller cancer cases. 
think some facial cancers and oral cancers, and then Friday back to children's uh, operating. So looking for help. We have a good group of faculty now, but we're looking for more. Now that the hiring freeze is done from New York, we're, we're set to add those. Awesome. We're also adding some fellows. So we have a fellow coming in next year who is going to be our American Head Next Study Fellow at Roswell Park Cancer Center, which which they take one every year. But this year they took an oral maxillofacial surgeon, which is pretty unique, actually. There's only been a few in that type of program that have been chosen as oral maxillofacial surgeons. And then they're going to actually stay on to do a craniofacial fellowship with me and with our department. And then actually very recently we decided and we agreed to take a fellow for coming July for craniofacial surgery, and that'll be our inaugural pediatric craniofacial fellow. So trying to keep the residents happy and trying to add and kind of keep everyone happy while building. Yeah, that's terrific. So happy for you guys that you're making progress and expanding and kind of just doing bigger stuff. That's so cool. Appreciate it. Thanks. Yes. Well, good. Um, We had kind of decided that we would do an episode with you on cleft surgery. We haven't really had someone discuss that on the podcast and some of our listeners have also reached out and requested that. So yeah, I thought it would be good just to kind of start from, from the beginning and, you know, discuss, you know, everything from diagnosing and, and then going on to treat. So can you kind of give us your, when you first see a cleft patient, how you go about treating them and diagnosing them? Yeah. So that's a great question. And I think it's probably going to be a common board question for any oral maxillofacial resident. You know, you see a patient, you're consulted to the NICU or, you know, your friend calls you, they have a new baby born with a cleft lip and palate and what's next. I think in our specialty, again, we're in that area all day long. I think we are the ones who, who ideally should be treated along with our colleagues, oral cancer, uh, cleft lip and palate, because we're there all day long. And in most programs, you know, our specialty will be doing bone grafting and the orthognathic surgery, often the distraction. And actually, that's the most difficult part of the whole process. But I think, you know, certainly it's nice to be able to do cleft lip, cleft palate care, cranosynostosis care, syndrome care. So I think it's good. And as dentists, we can offer, I think, a lot to that patient. So the first thing I think when you see the patient is, you know, obviously the birth history, how are they doing? The family history question often asked by the parents are, okay, well, I had this child with a cleft lip and palate. What's the chance that my, another child will be born with that? And so, you know, depending on which paper you read, you know, there's certain numbers out there, but I think, you know, it is increased risk. It's not astronomical, but, but it's definitely increased. And then also if you have a parent and a sibling with a cleft lip and palate, that obviously raises the risk of that more for that child for cleft lip and palate and just cleft palate. So, and then when, when you talk about what to address first, and certainly when there's a palatal component, that's when you think about feeding, you know, feeding speech, the lipid itself, you know, obviously that's the thing people pay attention to and it gets attention when you look at the patient, but it's the palatal component that's going to really cause that patient some issues with feeding. And such as we have here, we have five speech pathologists on our team who at any time will be consulting on those patients and working with them. And that's critical because we could teach them as surgeons, but I think the nurses and speech pathology are really phenomenal with getting that going. 
And the biggest thing to remember for anyone, for residents, for parents, is that that patient cannot develop a suction, you know, on a normal bottle to start feeding. You know, they, they need some help. And so that's going to be a volume derived or delivered bottle, such as a Dr. Brown or a Haberman or another type of, of bottle. And Dr. Brown is kind of the more popular one now for certain reasons, but where the parents deliver the nutrition to the child and they feed the child. And so very quickly they can get that. They just need to practice. And usually within a day, you know, it's good. And, and that baby can do great. So, you know, the first rules, three rules that kind of we always tell our patients with that is feeding, feeding, feeding. It's all about getting that baby good enough. And in fact, not that I could help much, but I'll see the patients usually about two weeks after birth if they go home and two to three weeks after. And then again, just to make sure that they're hitting their body weight curve and, and so on. If they're not, you know, ideally the pediatricians pay attention to that, but along with the feeding medicine people and the um, speech pathologists, we're all paying attention and, and we all talk all day long when these babies don't do well. And, and sometimes they don't do well enough that they can go to the emergency room. So the next thing is to talk about timing, you know, so what surgeries are in, in line for my, for my child and starting off with, of course, the lip repair. And, you know, when you talk about the lip repair, you know, there's a rule of tens out there, 10 pounds, hemoglobin of 10 and 10 weeks of life. I think, you know, that was more of a rule based on back when pediatric anesthesia was not as safe as it is today. And at our hospital and others, we have fully trained pediatric fellowship trained anesthesiologists and, and they're great. And babies go to sleep early on in life all the time. But really, we wait till at least three months because there's a good amount of tissue. There's good tissue to work with. If you're working on a, on a larger child, it's easier to work with. And also that fetal circulation has really you know, gone away and they're transitioning to more of their normal circulation from a cardio standpoint. So it's safer in that regards. Certainly, if you need to go earlier, you can. One thing that delays the lip repair, if you use any kind of pre-surgical orthopedics, such as nasal alveolar molding, you know, we have a great NAM person here and her name's uh, Jessica Catalanos. She does a great job. She's a prosthodontist. She does NAM here for us now. You know, usually that'll push it to like four or five, sometimes even six months. And we'll wait. We'll wait till that nose and lip is in a really good position and we're happy. And certainly, and, and, and I would be you know, remiss if I didn't say that we don't need NAM to have a good outcome. You know, the way I was trained in fellowship and even myself, if we don't do NAM, you can get a good outcomes without it. It certainly makes the surgery easier, but the outcome studies are still not definitive. There's some from NYU that are showing that they think that the cosmetic outcome is better, but there's not many other centers that have demonstrated that. Okay. So if you think about that, we want to tell the parents that three months of life, or more, we're going to repair your child's lift. And often they'll ask, well, why not go earlier? Because, you know, there's there was some centers in the country that were going at day one or day two of life. And the thought was you can harness that fetal healing in a very newborn to get more of a scarless surgery. And we know now that unless the surgery is really performed intrauterine, that it's not, there's always going to be a scar of some kind. So we know that that was a thought that you can get them younger and maybe have more healing potential, but that hasn't played out. So most centers now have really abandoned that. The next stage would be repair the cleft palate if there is one. And the goal is get them going to till they're good with feeding. But, you know, 
if you ask a speech pathologist when they want the palate repaired, it's day one of life. They want that that velum or that palate working and phonating so that baby can use it as soon as they they are able. If you ask us as growth doctors and orthodontists and our other colleagues who care about growth, we're going to wait to repair that palate as long as we can. Because we know that the palate repair itself causes mid-face growth restriction. So it, it's kind of a, a negotiation where we say about 12 to 18 months. And some people go a bit earlier, some go a bit later, but that's a general rule of thumb. And kind of what I tell patients is right when they start babbling, when the baby starts to talk a little bit, then we'll hit them with a the power repair. And I think that's a good good rule of thumb. And usually it's about 12 months of life. And really that mid-phase growth restriction is so real because if you go mission trips and you see patients who are 18 years old or older and they did not have a pal repair, their mid-phase grows fine. So mm. it's really the surgery that we have to do that often contributes significantly to mid-phase growth restriction. Those are the surgeries that are really upfront. But then when you talk about what's next in the cascade, it's going to be usually if they need some speech surgery, you can do that beforehand, the age of four, when they can be evaluated by a speech, speech pathologist. But Sometimes uh, they don't. And, and then the next major thing, if it's a full, complete cleft lip of the palate, would be the bone graft. And the bone graft, typically, you know, the board answer is when the canine is, you know, um, one half to two thirds formed, because certainly you don't want that canine to erupt into air, into a cleft site, because it won't erupt. It's going to be, be gone. So it's a dentally based procedure that, so timing is dental based. So the palate is on speech. Timing of the palate is based on dental development. However, some centers, including us, I think are starting to go a bit earlier because we know we can save the canine with the bone graft, but the lateral incisor often, if it's not dysmorphic, will have, it will lose bone. It's so much so that it will cause a big periodontal defect. So some centers, and we are tending, trending towards that way, are going a bit earlier. Of course, you need to go through all the things for that patient, such as expansion, we tend to go in the preoperative setting for expansion. So our paradigm, we saw a couple of cleft bone graphs on Friday is see the orthodontist for expansion. Once you're expanded, they'll let us know. You get the expander removed, splint is made, bone graft is scheduled, and then bone graft and splint. And then really after the bone graft, you fast forward to orthodontic surgery, which is, you know, as skeletal maturity, oral maxillofacial surgeons, we always want to go when the kid's done growing to usually advance their mid-face and perform single jaw or, or double jaw surgery. But that comes at the caveat that we'll go earlier if there's social concerns. You know, we obviously want to only do the surgery once, but, it, you know, if a child's getting teased, if they're 12 years old and they're, get, and they're in the back of the class and they have a gross deformity and they're not answering questions, they're not learning, to me, that's a big reason to go early and do that orthodontic procedure earlier whether it be a single jaw surgery that's more definitive or uh, jaw surgery, or it, it's a distraction, it's okay to go earlier. Just knowing that you have to tell the patient they, they might have to have the second procedure. And then the last thing would be usually uh, among the, the process is the cleft rhinoplasty, which, you know, we want to build a foundation first. We'll build that on our Lafort. You know, you get some changes in the nose and then we'll usually, unless there's social concerns and a gross deformity, we'll wait to do that rhinoplasty uh, after the jaw surgery. And then throughout that whole time period, you can have any lip revisions and so on during that time. So that's kind of a summary of it, I would say. And certainly, Grant, you know, people do things differently and maybe they're more correct, but that's kind of the paradigm that we follow. 
Nice. Yeah, that's really helpful to get the overall kind of sequence of things. It's been many years since I took the boards, but if someone's given a question about, you know, the, the actual technique to, you know, repair the lip or the palate, those type of questions, I doubt they're going to ask a resident that, but what kind of response would you give to questions like that? Yeah, that's a great question. And as you know, with all the things we do, it's depending on which surgeon you ask and what their preference is, because everyone has their own lip repair technique that they prefer. Pal repair, absolutely people differ in that as well. So for, for me, I would say just pick a technique that you know well and that you could get down and go with that one for the boards. And if you're getting to the point where someone uh, is asking you about different techniques, you're probably doing pretty well on that. <laughs> so, yeah. but I think it's important to know. And I think it's important, even if you're at a center that just does, does the bone graft, I, I think it's a great thing to know what that could have. And so the different techniques and what's out there. So the most common technique that we all use and that I still use, and, and I modified it quite a bit since training is the Ralph Millard rotation advancement flap, you know, so designed by Dr. Millard when he was in actually in a war and he tried it out on some kids. This is a technique. The rotation advancement is something that really has a lot of benefits. You know, it, it's a cut as you go flap. So if you're not happy with the lip length, you can keep cutting and modifying the flap unlike others. I can tell you as a resident, I struggled with to really get to perceptualize that. And and we, I saw a fair amount of cleft lip in residency, but it was always kind of this mystique around it to me as a resident. And so if you think about it, you know, the non-cleft side is going to rotate down and the cleft side advances into that defect, hence the name rotation advancement flap. And there's all these the modifications of that, but that's really the gist of it. And whatever technique you do for lip repair, it's a three-layer repair. So mucosa is important, but Muscles are actually the most important. So getting that sphincter in place, that orbicularis working again, and then obviously skin is what you see. But if you don't have a good muscle closure, the lip repair won't look good and it won't work well. Other repairs out there, you know, that slightly older are, you know, the Randall Tennyson repair, which is essentially a straight line repair, Z-plasty uh, technique. That's a technique that you can't modify along doing it. One that's come up real popular, which I think is a really nice repair and have tried, is the anatomic subunit repair, which is kind of a blend between both techniques. And that was designed by a surgeon in Toronto named David Fisher, who is a cleft surgeon still at SickKids in Toronto. And it has a lot of points. Once you get it, you know, it's quite useful. And surgeons, and especially in our specialty, really like that repair a lot. No, and then again, we talked about the pre-surgical orthopedics, whether it be Latham, which is used in some centers as a bone-anchored appliance, which is not as popular. In fact, it's really only used in one center that I know of. But I think NAM or nasal alveolar molding is kind of taken over as you know the favorite. The fear is that you're going to cause some restriction of uh, facial growth, but you know I think with NAM that hasn't played out as much. And then, you know, surgery and then do your repair. And then, of course, you don't want the repair wrecked. So you have the patient in arm restraints for a few weeks. Some surgeons choose not to use those. And they're just the no-no arm restraints that restraints that don't let the patient, you know, or, or the kid put a finger in his lip. And the lip repair is usually straightforward. Technique grant for PAL repair, you know, there's many out there. The Von Langenbach, which is 
an anterior pedicle is still in place, which we use a lot when there's just a soft palate cleft. And then you essentially make release incisions on the side. Then again, three layer closure, nasal side, muscle side, then oral side. There is the Bardock two flat palatal plasty. And so Bardock was a Polish trained uh, surgeon who was based on Iowa and actually developed that technique. And that's the technique that I use most. And then really what has come to be really popular is the double opposing Z plasty that was uh, really designed by furlough and furlough was at the university of florida and really only did i think about 30 of those but other hospitals made revisions of that procedure such as children's hospital of philadelphia and others in pittsburgh where it's become really popular the advantage of that is that you know you get really good palatal length with that procedure which is, can help hopefully negate any kind of velopharyngeal insufficiency some people say there's an increase in fistula rate Okay. And then, of course, orthognathics, you know, is different. But those are kind of the general techniques used for lip and palate repair. Nice. For my own enlightenment, what type of sutures are you using for these repairs? So that's a great question. So for lip repair, you know, the, like the dogmatic way is to always to use non-resorbable sutures, right? So like a 6-0 nylon, maybe I, I use 7-0 sometimes in, in patients or, or proline. You can take those out in clinic, but it's challenging. And it's not fun for anyone involved in that situation. Yeah. So I have, and I was trained with this, by the way, I've used 6-0 monocryl. Of course, the fear is the inflammatory response that you get with, with a suture that, that does resorb. And I've actually seen that. You know, I think for trauma, like definitely I use absorbable suture often because it's just, you know, it's tough to get patients back with that. But and that's how I was trained. But monocryl, you can see that. But what's nice is that you, you can just nick the suture, cut the knot. You don't have to take out the full suture. And if you have good wound care by the parents and family, it usually dissolves quite quickly. But, you know, Grant, it's a great question. I mean, the most important thing is to get your muscle together. And for that, I usually use like a maybe a three or an, usually a four or a bicral to get that okay. together and create a really robust opicularis. And then inside the mouth, would just use a, you know, three ochromic for the palate repair. Usually that's, you know, bicral on the palate. Sometimes the releasing incisions can be closed with chromic. And then for bone grafting, we'll use a combination of bicrals and chromic sutures as well. That's awesome. And then for your alveolar cleft repair, what are some of the techniques that you found to be more successful in your hands? That's a great question because that's, I think, if you're looking at our boards, you're more likely to get a bone graft question, how you do it, how you work it up, and or a cleft orthognathic patient. So for the bone graft, now I was always taught this by Dr. Ruiz out in Orlando when I did fellowship that, and Dr. Turby would always preach this too, that it's a cleft maxillary bone graft, it's not an alveolar bone graft. You know, we, we all call it that, myself included, in notes sometimes, but you're really bone grafting the whole maxilla, not just the alveolus. So you can think about the workup would be see the patient, make sure that, you know, usually big thing will be having their six-year molars in place so they can get an expander. Once they have that, you can have your orthodontist put an expander and almost always will expand our patients unless they're good in the transverse plane, which they're not always, usually they're not. We'll usually overexpand. And, and what that does, is it establishes the transverse width before you start any kind of procedure. So you're done. Patient doesn't have to have an expander and after surgery. But also it actually creates some more room to work. Sometimes the lesser and greater segment of the maxilla, are, you know, they're touching. 
So there's no room to do your bone grafts. It's actually easier to work in an expanded patient sometimes. You'll never open up or create a fistula with expansion, but you'll certainly open up fistulas with expansion and it, that's okay. So then expansion, and then as we talked about going to the procedure, I think some tricks are definitely getting good local anesthetic involved. Ideally, the palate is mostly repaired. And if not, you just have to repair it again at, at that time. I think cleft bone grafting, to me, Grant, is the hardest thing that we do. Like, like if I have a bilateral cleft bone graft, I think that's harder than a lip repair any day of the week. You're upside down looking. And the textbooks always show this nice repair that I would see that is very straightforward looking. But we always forget, you know, that it, well, stuff that we know that that palate mucosa not moving. So when you have a big bilateral cleft with a gap between the premaxilla and the secondary palate, that's challenging to close. It's amazing that they work as often as they do because there's a lot of areas that can become fistulized there. And so we always warn patients that, you know, the graft could partially fail on either side. It can completely fail. It can fail with a fistula. But, you know, I think wide release is helpful in these cases, especially with a bilateral graft. You know, and my go-to still is autogenous bone in the form of iliac crest as a first option in the untouched, unrepaired cleft bone graft. However, we will use BMP and allograft in a repeat graft scenario or in an older patient. In older patient, you know, older patients have a high higher propensity to fail. They don't have the healing power of an eight-year-old anymore. They definitely need more, I think. So for the for the technique, I think it's it's always hard to conceptualize a cleft bone graft. You know, you make your labial and your palatal incisions to get your oral flaps developed. Once you do that, though, you know, it's a sharp dissection to really release that nasal side from that oral side to develop that plane. And it's a constant, you know, getting your, you know, periosteal, but also a sharp dissection to release that. And you'll usually have a communication into the nose, and that's okay, but you'll develop that nasal mucosa release and plane up front and then on the palate. And then once you get that, you want to close it, you want to invert the sutures and, and into the nose to evert that mucosa into the nose. And once you have that, you can actually do some closure on your on your oral side. You can close your palatal aspect, make your release and incisions if you need to. And then you can go ahead and prepare for your graft. And again, with the with the unrepaired bone graft, autogenous bone from the iliac crest, which is a quick procedure for all of us, is our go-to. Pack the bone, we'll overpack it usually. And then you'll close the oral side. This is the one procedure I think, Grant, that you know is really an important thing to define your goals. And one, you'll be asked that, but also just to conceptualize what your goals are. And you know, it's to form continuity of the maxilla to so turn two or three segments into one. So you form bony continuity. It's to put an alveolus there for the canine to erupt. It's to close any oral nasal fistula, which cause the patient issues with obviously getting fluids in their nose. And we often forget that it's really important to provide support for the nose. So you'll get other surgeons and maybe perhaps other specialists sometimes who will do a cleft rhinoplasty. But as we all know, as jaw surgeons, if there's not a good nasal base there, that soft tissue is just going to sink into it. So mm -hmm. that's a big goal. And you'll see that with patients. Once they get their graft, if it's a good graft, they'll get a lot of nasal support. And that nose that was collapsed on that side, the nasal sill and, and ala, will have a better support. So 
those are the goals and you know that, that you kind of strive to achieve i think when doing that surgery yeah that's really helpful to hear you kind of walk through that and explain the goals and, and great for sure of course for boards because i'm sure that would be a kind of a hot question to ask but yeah thanks for running through that as far as orthognathic surgery goes what are the usual kind of movements that you're doing and the preparation for that? Yeah. So, you know, I'm sure again, you, you probably agree that I think that cleft orthognathic case, especially a bilateral case, and perhaps one that's not repaired, that's probably the hardest thing that we have in the whole cascade of, of surgeries. That's one thing that we can do for that patient. I think that's very effective and that's going to give them just incredible quality of life afterwards. And then things to prepare for are, did they have a pharyngeal flap? So did they have a pharyngeal flap and that was done for speech concerns at, when they were younger? And if so, how are you going to tell your anesthesiologist about intubating them and getting the tube down? Obviously, they'll have two ports. And to be honest, we rarely have ever had to take one down, but you can take it down. If they say, hey, I can't get the tube down, you can take, take it away. Or usually with a fiber optic scope, they can, they can go down one of those ports and keep it. Another reason that the pharyngeal flap might limit you, which isn't usually the case, is that it might restrict the movement you can get anteriorly and to move that jaw forward. That's a struggle sometimes, but it's a struggle in general to advance, you know, severely scarred down cleft maxillas. I think things to think about are, you know, are, are you going to do it in segments? Are you going to do it in one piece? Often cleft patients, unfortunately, have poor dental health. How are you going to decompensating, decompensating, get your braces on? How are you going to let your orthodontist decompensate the dentition and level align for you? Do they want orthodontic surgery? I mean, obviously we see these patients and it's such a significant need for them, but there are, is the rare patient that they hit that 17 year mark. And especially once they're going to college, understandably so, they're just so fatigued from surgery. You know, so it's just such a long road for them. So Sometimes they don't want to do it. And, and often they want their rhinoplasty first. And, you know, here we always tell them, well, that comes second after we build the base of your nose with the orthognathic procedure. But those are things to think about, I think. And also, you know, as, as you know, the, the famous question is, how much advancement can you get with a pure orthognathic procedure, one stage advancement? At what length do you have to use distraction? And I would just say have a general number in your head and the go-to number is usually 10 millimeters. I don't know if that's true. We've all have, have advanced jaws of 14 to 15 millimeters. Of course, some question, if you can get that, is it stable? I've seen both sets of patients with orthognathics, after uh, cleft orthognathics or cleft distraction procedures, to be honest, have significant relapse. And, and even after removing distractors and seeing a nice sheet of bone there, I've seen patients relapse. Some can be due to the relapse of the maxilla, and some can be due to growth of the mandible as well. You know, it's just a pseudo relapse. So those are things to prepare for. But I think that's a procedure that anyone in our specialty should be able to, to perform. And like anything with, with orthognathics or stuff we do, it's all about blood supply. So that palate is very scarred. It's had multiple operations. I think you have to prepare for not being able to move that maxilla much so much so we did one recently where we cut the maxilla it, it dropped and it just dropped and there was barely any movement <laughs> so you try to advance and you know you're shooting for 12 millimeters or or less or more and 
you have to work at it. You have to keep mobilizing it. I'm not a big fan of the rotus and passion forceps, but if you use them, you got to be careful of, of perforating the palate. Use your Tessier elevators, whatever your Selden, whatever you choose. You know, I use the Tessiers a lot. And then you can start, if you're careful, and this is something you have to be extremely careful with, you can start to release some of the scarring on the posterior palate. But of course, you have to be worried about blood supply. And so one thing I think to consider, Grant, if you're saying like, well, what do you think about is, I think often these patients, we always think about the mid-face, and often we'll think about setting them back. But often I think these patients are bimaxillary retrusive. You know, they're actually deficient in their upper jaw and their lower jaw. And you'll see this with the syndromic patient, you know, the Aperts patient, especially the Cruzone patients, but in cleft patients, they actually need double or triple jaw surgery and triple jaw, you know, the, in the form of a, a Ford advancement, a, a sagittal split advancement, or whatever you choose. And then actually a genioplasty advancement too. So always look at that and say, you know, if the upper jaw was in the right position, how would I treat this mandible? And you might often say, I need to advance this more. And if you advance it more, then you have to advance your, your maxilla and uh, mid-face more. The blood supply issue is big. I think if you have an intact maxilla, it's an intact bone grafted maxilla, you can just make a, your normal circumvestibular incision. If it's a bilateral cleft where it's a non-repaired bone graft, of course, you have to consider maybe do I leave an anterior pedicle there? You can get away with a lot, but of course, you always want to be cognizant of that blood supply. So I think those are a few things, Grant, just to think about in these patients. Yeah, really helpful to kind of hear your your thought process there and kind of that first and foremost concern about the prior surgeries and scarring and, and blood supply and yeah. have that base of knowledge there before you probably start describing the technique and stuff when, when you're answering questions on a board type setting. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. Any other kind of tricks or tips you have for treating these patients? So I have like a lecture I give on because like my worlds are the cancer world and and the cleft world. And I think regardless of which one, they're very different patients, right? You have the older adult, usually a smoker patient, and you have the young child. But what's very common in them is it's a couple of things. And I think the first one being that they really need team care. I think that's critical to have a team that's dedicated to treating these patients. Just like the cancer patient needs radiation oncology, medical oncology, speech language and pathology, dentistry, prosthodontics, oral maxillofacial surgery. I think cleft patients need all that. And to be honest, in the cleft world, if you have an ACPA approved team, such as we do, you need to have all those things. So for example, for craniofacial and cleft is a different designation by the cleft palate association. So we have both cleft and craniofacial. And it's not an easy task. You know, we just renewed our status two years ago. and We've had a approved team here now for the past, I want to say, 25 to 30 years. But they're really strict. They said you didn't have a, a neuropsychologist on your team to manage these kids. And we said, you know what, you're right. So we actually had to bring that in. That's a new requirement. So to manage the psychological concerns of these patients, you know, the, the social worker on the team. And so having that team there that can help and assist you, because to us, of course, we're just worried about the clinical stuff and the surgery, but these families and the kids go through so much and it's a long road for them. It's so many appointments. Often they have other medical problems and if they're syndromic, 
these parents are just incredible at how they have to take care of these patients. So we have to be able to help them with that. We have a phenomenal nurse coordinator. Her name is Jan Rockwood here in Buffalo, who's just been on the team for the past 30 years. And she's just incredibly dedicated and takes care of a lot of the stuff for, for these patients. Of course, from the craniofacial side, we had to have a neurosurgeon. So we have two pediatric neurosurgeons here that we work with, and they're both phenomenal. And that's a requirement as well. And then you have to have, of course, a craniofacial surgeon who can do that part. The other thing I think that's important when you talk about these patients and talk about cancer population or the cleft population is you need dentistry. I always tell my friends in orthodontics and prosthodontics, they are always the ones who bail us out. They're the most important part of a team. And a team is really struggling when they don't have good dental support. So true. You know, if you think about every step of cleft care, whether it be NAM, you know, nasal alveolar molding, some dental specialist, usually the orthodontist has to do it. Getting ready for the bone graft, if you want to do it right, you know, you need an orthodontist or a prosthodontist to provide expansion. And of course, for the orthodontic procedure, you need that as well. And that's not even including the complex distractions and so on you could do for syndromic kids. And then again, the same for the cancer team. You know, I always say they're so valuable, you know, restorative care, all that stuff before radiation, after radiation is so critical. And if patients don't have that, they suffer, they need teeth extracted, they develop osteoporotic necrosis. So dentistry is so important. The last thing I would say is that I think us as oral maxillofacial surgeons is just incredible, I think, as especially what we can offer. You know, Brian Bell, when I interviewed for residency, I won't say when, <laughs> in Oregon, he gave us a talk and as like the intro to OHSU talk. And he said, you know, it's funny how all of us, you, me, we all work in the mouth all day long. You know, we, we take out lesions, we goop out benign tumors, obviously take out teeth. We do orthognathic surgery, we do bone graft. I mean, no one does more bone grafting in all of medicine besides orthopedic surgeons than us. However, when someone gets the cancer diagnosis, you know, we have to stop, right? Unless we stop there and we refer to like another specialty. And I would say the same thing for cleft, you know, in that we work in this region all day long, palate, the mouth, the alveolus, but that's our wheelhouse. That's where we live. And so I think it's just so critical that we stay notable and prominent and keep treating these patients. Because to be honest, other specialties are so helpful and so good and and they're my colleagues but i think having an oral maxillofacial surgeon on the team doing stuff is just so critical and i think especially for the most important part which i think is the orthognathic case there is no procedure in all of medicine or dentistry that has such a profound effect on someone's life in orthognathic surgery from a functional and an aesthetic perspective and especially in the cleft patient and that's something we can offer so I just think it's it's important to treat these patients. I you know I hope residents who are going out there. Of course, I would love for them to all do fellowships, but if not, I think please do bone grafts, please do jaw surgery. If you can do cleft lip and palate, do that as well because I think it's such a valuable service for these patients, and they they kind of need us. So that's my big two cents there. I love that. That's awesome. Love love to hear your your take on all that. Um, and I'm sure there's a big aspect of just the social part of your ability to communicate with the parents and the patient and, you know, kind of set their expectations for um, 
the road ahead and talk in such a way that can can yeah. keep them coming back because like you're saying yeah. sometimes you can get surgery fatigue after doing so much of this very that's helpful. true well i i think this has been super helpful if there's listeners who kind of want to delve into this more have more questions or are you open to them contacting you or what are your thoughts always and you know often residents do and i am always open to talking about cleft surgery because i love talking about it but also for those who want to pursue maybe fellowship training you know i think there's a small group of us and especially who do this and we're all very passionate about it so my email is is always online. You just need to Google it. You know, we're all we're all over social media and so on. So yeah, I mean, I'm always open. And then you could always give me a call as well. So I'm happy to talk to people about this. All right. Thank you so much for taking time and have a good rest of your day. Thanks a lot, Grant. Thanks for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Once again, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com if you have any topics you'd like to hear about, guests you'd like to hear from, or if you yourself would love to be a guest, please, please email me or text me at 720-441-6059. And also just love hearing from people if you enjoy the podcast or, you know, learn something from it or talk to a friend or connected with someone because of the podcast. That just makes my day. So please shoot that correspondence over to me and I will see you on the next episode. Thank you.